And now, Lord, may your word be our rule, your Holy Spirit our teacher, and your Son's greater glory. May it always be our supreme concern through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Would you sit, please? Well, it seems all of a sudden that we've reached Advent Sunday. A new liturgical year begins for us, and this precious penitential season commences as it does. We find ourselves in our gospel reading this morning considering matters of eschatology or end things. And it seems impossible to be a human being today and not to be interested in the future. I don't mean next week or next month or perhaps even next year, though that may be as far as some of us feel we have the energy to look. I mean beyond the immediate to the personal end of humanity and the world itself. We human beings have been thinking and wondering and some of us worrying about the end of the world since our beginning. And throughout history, there have been predictions about how the world will end, when will it happen, at which point will history intersect with eternity. And what we understand and believe about these matters will determine whether we find the discussion of them riveting or ridiculous, awesome or fanciful, sad or joyful. So as 2020 races to its end, the conviction grows that, that many things are, are ending with it. A vaccine for the virus appears in our grasp. We made it past November the 3rd. And the sun is still rising each day. Significant conversations are taking place between Israel and the Muslim world. 2020 has been in the title of Hosbaum's book, The Age of Extremes. And we therefore ask, is the end in sight? And for some people it feels as if we're, we're at some sort of cosmic crossroads, a hinge of history. And what do we make of it all? Well, that's where we find ourselves in our gospel reading this morning. And if you have it there or have a, uh, access to the Bibles, why don't you open it with me? We've got a few verses set aside in, in Mark chapter 13, but I want us to glance just quickly at the whole, uh, the whole chapter. For in it, we discover there is ultimately only one authentic uh, interpreter of the ages, and that is Jesus, our Lord. For in Mark chapter 13, Jesus unfolds the future, not so much next year or the next decade, but the whole period of the Christian era between his resurrection and his return, that period that we refer to as the last days. Do you see it there in, in Mark chapter 12, it's a, a, a 13, it's a breathtaking chapter, but it's also a difficult chapter. And we notice two themes weave their way inextricably through these verses before us. Firstly, what was hap going to happen to Jerusalem in the short term? It's, it's coming destruction, we know, which happened in AD 70. And secondly, what was going to happen to the world in the longer term with the glorious return of Jesus himself at the end of history? And... As in all the crises of history where God judges, 
We see the final judgment there referenced in this passage. History has demonstrated to us that Jesus was right about Jerusalem. Look in verses one to three. The issue is whether we can trust him for the future. That's the challenge of this chapter. And forgive me if in a single sermon I I fail to do justice to the issue in this chapter that most perplexes you. But let's just glance at these verses. Because this chapter is less about sign spotting or date setting. It is much more about holding on when things look shaky. It's, It's about trusting when things seem to be going wrong. It's about wise waiting. Look with me quickly, verse five. See that no one leads you astray. Glance down to verse 33. Be on your guard. Verse 35, stay awake. Verse 37, what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So it's a very practical chapter. And do you notice that whether the time is going to be long or whether it's going to be short, there is work to be done. Do you notice that? Let's go back to the beginning and see how the argument develops. Go back with me to the last week of his earthly life, verse one, Jesus walked out of the Jerusalem temple and a chance remark from one of the disciples admiring the remarkable temple, that building with its magnificent white marble stones and the admiration of the known world, a wonder of the world is met with a devastating reply from Jesus. Look with me, verse two, that even this very place where God's presence was supremely seen and experienced, this wonderful edifice was to permanently be destined for destruction. And it's, it's, it's very hard for us to grasp the impact of how this must have struck the disciples with Jesus that day. And he picks up the conversation in verse three. He's with four of his inner circle privately together outside the city now on the Mount of Olives looking across at this monument to the permanence, its permanence in a sea of change, a symbol of God's rule in the world, this holy place. And Jesus says, its days are numbered. And one of the disciples asked the question that we never seem to tire of asking. When, Jesus? When? When will it be? Tell us when these things are happening. Let me put them in my schedule. What will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? And that's the question, the one question that Jesus chooses not to answer. The when question is a natural one for all of us to ask, is it not? An answer would would satisfy our curiosity. It would meet our need for security, but it would also somehow, would it not relieve us of the need to, to be prepared in our hearts for the coming of Christ at any time? And even though Jesus chooses not to answer, he does establish some hazard warning lights for these catastrophic events. These signals he gives are not given to satisfy our curiosity or to enable the church to play the date game. They're given to equip us for the journey, the journey we're on now, that journey, yes, 
and to help us know what to expect in a fallen world, to, to assist us while we wait. And so Advent reminds us, doesn't it, that we need an ethic of waiting, which many of us find so terribly challenging in our world of instant access. So here, very briefly, are four signals for us as we wait for the end. Jesus references these. Remember, I've called them hazard uh, 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 lights. They're not all original to me, but I hope you'll find them uh, impacting. Let's look at the first one very quickly. Verse five, the presence in the church as the end draws near of deception. See, Jesus says that no one leads you astray. Verse six, many will come, not, not just a few odd people, but many will come. It's a very solemn announcement, frightening in a way from Bachoba in the second century to David Koresh in the 20th. There have been people around willing to claim, verse six, I am he, ready to assert themselves, a spokesman for divine truth, claiming a new revelation, a fresh something new, saying, God is speaking only now through me. But the true prophet does not come saying, listen to me. They come saying, listen to him. They do not come claiming fresh truth for today. They always point you to the open word of God, always. And they say, listen to Jesus, see that no one leads you astray. The presence of deceivers, tragically, where are they in the church, is the first characteristic of the last days. Here's the second one. Look down verse seven and eight. This one doesn't surprise us as much. Worsening world conflict and natural disaster and political and physical calamity from the sacking of Rome by Alaric and his hordes in 410 to, to modern day where? Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria. From the burying of Pompeii to the great Chinese earthquake, from the, from the Black Death to what, COVID-19. People across the centuries have argued, is this the big one? Is this the end? Are we the generation? Has it arrived? And yet again, listen to the words of Jesus, verse seven, do not be alarmed. Don't be alarmed, no. These things must happen, why? Because the end, he says, is yet to come. Verse eight, look with me. These things are not the end, but they are in some sense the beginning of the end, the labor pains, the heralding of the joy of birth. That's why we call this Advent season a penitential season. It helps to prepare our hearts for his coming. These are times of suffering which make people listen. Crises that remind us we cannot solve our own problems all the time and that God has something to say from his world, word to a world in turmoil. And he says that Christ is near. If only we will turn to him. So worsening world conflict and natural disaster and political and physical calamity and a waiting for Jesus. That's the second theme. Here's the third one. This is nine through 13. This is very chilling, this one. Do you notice it? The triumph of the persecuted church. Some of you will know that my wife Brenda and I have spent considerable years working and supporting our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. And as the end draws nearer, so-called comfortable Christianity disappears. And Jesus is unequivocal. 
Look, verse 13, in a summary, you will be hated by all, all for my name's sake. In the last days, the church is under pressure. And we are, I, I suggest, beginning to see this even in our own nation. For when the church is true to her Lord, when Christians uphold a, a faithful biblical position, the world finds Christians hard to stomach. Verse 10, the gospel has been effectively preached as the church is under pressure. It's a wonderful thing. The church pressed down, yes, that's not easy. But as they are, the gospel is being proclaimed and spreading to the ends of the earth. And consider how this has happened in our lifetime. How we've progressed in the last, let's say, 70 years with the spread of the, of the, of the gospel. World mission is surging forward, even when the church is under pressure. Consider China, for example. The missionary is thrown out of China in the 1970s. And what, 70 years later, the church in China is exploding with growth, with some reports stating over 60 million disciples of Christ today in China alone. God has done that, just as he said he would. And the gospel reaches all sorts of places, and it reaches all sorts of people. Verse 9, they will deliver you over to councils and you'll be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. How has that happened? Think verse 9. It was fulfilled in part in the Apostle Paul standing before Festus and Agrippa. Remember your New Testament. Or an Archbishop, Jani Lumwun, in, in Uganda before the dictator. Idi Amin, or Bishop Hayek Mosipian Mir standing before the mullahs in Iran, all preaching the gospel. You would never think of these tyrants hearing the gospel, but God makes sure that they do. And that's a mark of these last days. You see, you can shut the churches, you can ban the seminaries, you can throw out the missionaries, you can send the secret police knocking down the doors, but in the last days you cannot thwart the purposes and the plan of God. The triumph of the persecuted church is a mark of these last days. And the fourth theme of this chapter, look, one for which historians are very familiar, the fall of Jerusalem. Jesus sketches out in that passage, verses 14 to 23, some of the themes plainly applicable to the forthcoming horrors of AD 70. Some of them soon to be filled in the historical detail, others projected onto the biggest screen of the great tribulation that precedes the Lord's return. An horrific time when Satan has one last final push but ultimately, it's a pointless push against the church before things end. So we've seen this morning some of the general signs of the end times. The pressure, the, the presence of deceivers in the, in the church, world conflict and natural disaster, the, the triumph of the persecuted church, the fall of Jerusalem and the great tribulation to come which God promises to shorten for the sake of the elect. But there is only one sign that will, in, will be entirely unequivocal, and that is the concluding sign. Look very quickly with me. Verses 24 to 31. Do you notice it there? The return of Jesus. How you, do you describe the indescribable? 
How do you articulate what is beyond words? Look, verse 24, the fixed points in the universe will be disrupted. Our deacon read them to us. Verse 26, at that time, everyone will see the Son of Man coming in great power and glory. It's shockingly public. And here is the event that will frighteningly be universally public. The event that will break into ordinary life and into its busyness and into its routine. Here we're talking about the future. And the best information we have comes from Jesus. History will not end, brothers and sisters, because of some sort of immutable determinism. History will end because God is God. God cannot be defeated. I know much of the church today looks shaky, but Jesus reminds his perplexed friends in Mark chapter 13 that God cannot be defeated. And finally, in verse 34, Jesus tells us the future belongs to him. The owner is away, only temporarily from the house, and he is coming back. And the lights are on, and the house is occupied, and the servants are or should be working while they are waiting. And the New Testament unmistakably says that God the Father, who sent Jesus to redeem the world at the beginning, is the same God who will send Jesus Christ to rescue the world at the end. That should give us great confidence in Christ as we consider the future. No need to worry about the timetable here. Just get hold of the fact that the future belongs to Christ. He is very near, very near. And one day he will come again. Let us pray. Almighty God, give us the grace to cast away the works of darkness and to put on the armor of light. Now, in the time of this mortal life in which your Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.